Amen. You know, if you get a chance to tell any of the praise band, any member, uh, yeah, in- encourage them. Aren't they a remarkable bunch? We are about to dive into the scriptures. Good morning, Mr. and Mrs. America and all the ships at sea. Good morning, Cyberland. Sounds like a Disney world, doesn't it? Cyberland. And welcome to all of you who made the trip here to be uh, on campus um, at Reach Church. My name is Steve. I am uh, pleased to be one of the associate pastors here and grateful to be with you this morning because we are about to dive into God's Word. The Scriptures, if you don't have a copy of the Bible, we would like to give you one. My friends are coming down, the, the, no charge, no obligation, you know. But wait! No, none of that. If you do not have a Bible this morning, why don't you raise your hand and let them uh, offer you a, a copy of your very own, and it is yours to keep. Okay, compliments of Reach Church. So uh, we're going to be headed um, to First Samuel chapter 11. So if you have a Bible and a table of contents, you can turn there right now, and that is where we will be. Save that for later. Open up my small print scripture. Open the scripture I can read. Well, let's 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 get a big picture here. Um, everyone everyone has a has a Bible. Who wants to see one? Life is good. Then let's pray real quick. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and to make things clear out of the written word that we need to know, to make the points clear um, that, that we need to know to get through the week and to respond well and in ways that glorify you to the culture around us and in our own families and, uh, and on the job and everywhere you put us. Um, Lord Jesus Christ, this is to your glory. Uh, Father God, be pleased with what you find in our hearts and our thoughts in the next few moments. And uh, we look to you uh, to inspire us, to spark life into us because of Jesus. Amen. All right. So, big picture. Ready? The books of Samuel. And you're in the first book of Samuel. You'll notice there are two. The books of Samuel tell about the transition of Israel from an alliance of 12 tribes into a small but important monarchy, almost an empire during times in its history. But we find today's passage in that point of transition. And they're trying to determine whether or not Saul... um, even though he has been anointed as king by the prophet Samuel, even though he has been uh, affirmed as king by the prophet Samuel and some of the people, there are still those who have doubts. 
And why is that? Because Saul has yet to prove himself on the battlefield. And so that's an issue. You know, because that's part of what they were looking to have a king do. And if the king can't come through on the battlefield, why should he lead us? And there are people who actually had that question and were very vocal about it. And were sort of uh, annoying with it. So here's the deal. Israel had the Philistines to the west, the Ammonites, uh, a Bedouin-like tribe of people, to their east, and they always seemed to be in a skirmish with one or the other while they were settling into the promised land. And if you remember the song, clowns to the left of you, jokers to the right, there you are, stuck in the middle. And that's what they were going through. So the important thing to take out of this is that because they had enemies who could hassle them from either side, when one enemy would get really serious about hassling them, the other one would take little skirmishes in just to bug them. You know, and so that's kind of the context of instability that Israel had been going through throughout the period of Judges. And they wanted that settled. They wanted it taken care of. And 1 Samuel 11 tells about how that got taken care of. The other thing about scriptures this morning that you need to know is that a lot of times, even though the Bible is famous for long lists in a few places, a lot of times they won't give you governmental detail. In the scriptures, they will give you personal stories. And the reason for that, at least in part, is to develop godly character from what you see, to learn lessons from what you encounter in the Bible, to be able to say, Do I want to go this way? Do I want to go that way? What's going to please God? What's going to move and, and, and make me fall back into bad patterns? I mean, all that stuff is part of what we learn as we encounter scriptures. You okay with that? Because we're going to go through 15 verses really quick. It'll go by so fast, you may not know it. Come on. All right. Oh, my. You ready to dive in? If I were to title this message, I would title it, Who's That Behind You? And let me tell you why. I know this is very difficult to imagine, but I was a mouthy little kid. And because I was a mouthy little kid, I was getting into fights on a regular basis on the playground. Probably twice a week. In a good week, four times. But my mouth was always getting me into trouble. And I remember one time, a couple of fourth graders I felt had offended me while I was in third grade. I was small for third grade because they had advanced me an extra year. So I was like kind of, you know, a head shorter than everyone else. Uh, but boy, did I ever pick fights well. And I can't even remember to this day what the fourth graders did to offend me. All I remember is they already had mustaches. 
That should have been my clue. But no. Um, so I pick a fight with these fourth graders. We set a time at the end of the school day. We were going to go to the South Softball Diamond on the playground of East Elementary in Glenwood, Iowa. And, and we were going to, you know, have, have it out there. And we uh, had our altercation that put us into a fight date uh, at noon recess, and it gave me the afternoon to reflect upon my actions in challenging two fourth graders with mustaches to a fight. And the afternoon wore on, and I determined that I was very likely to lose this one. And I began to reminisce about my life. And I thought, well, well, if you got to go, two on one, you can be legendary on the playground. And I remember waiting with some, some trepidation, but being a realist as well, um, I was making my way down to the South Ball Diamond, and I was coming in from the third baseline, and my opposition was coming in from the first baseline, and I made it to home plate before they did, and, you know, Cassius Clay had just defeated Sonny Liston. So I was like... gonna float like a butterfly <laughs> sting like a third grader <laughs> and there I was on home plate facing down the first baseline they were coming toward me they were walking confidently but all of a sudden I saw their faces turn ashen they stopped in their tracks I used the opportunity wisely to insult them And they kept backing up and backing up. And I was like, oh, come on, there are two of you guys and one of me. I don't have any hair on my face. You guys do. Come on. And then all of a sudden they turned and ran away. Shrugged my shoulders, turned around and walked into the belt buckle of my oldest brother. The all-state offensive lineman with no neck. <laughs> he looked down from his lofty height. There are problems, Steve. I looked up and said, not anymore. Sometimes, who stands behind you makes all the difference. Doesn't it? Here's what's going on, okay? Um, let's start with uh, verse 1. Again, setting the scene a little bit. Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, they were centrally located among the 12 tribes of Israel in the promised land. The Ammonites, the enemies today, 
were kind of nomads. They were kind of the Bedouins of their age, uh, along with several other tribes. But they were related to Israel. They traced their lineage back to Lot. But they were ready to fight. They were ready to pillage. They were ready to uh, show their stuff to the detriment of Israel. And they also had a peculiar attachment, not only to defeat an enemy, but also to humiliate them. And that becomes the significance of um, verse 2 as we go forward. But let's read um, 11.1. About a month later, this is after a month after Saul has been pronounced, was pronounced by Samuel as king. King Nahash of Ammon led his army against the Israelite town of Jabesh Gilead. First of all, Nahash... Every, every time you see, and, and some of your Bibles will have this, if you have a study Bible in the footnotes. Okay, Nahash means serpent. So here's a clue for Bible study going forward. The Old Testament rarely wastes an opportunity for a name to have significance. Okay? So I would just encourage you, you know, not, oh, life or death. Uh, you know, don't, don't get too hyped up about it. But start looking at names and seeing how the name fits into the story. See how the name fits into the narrative. Where else have you heard the word serpent used in the scriptures? Heard by the people, you know, who hear Nahash in their native tongue is, oh... Serpent. So do you think Nahash's utter, uh, uttermost goal for Israel is good? Oh, nay, nay, nay. Not at all. But all the citizens of Jabesh asked for peace. Make a treaty with us and we will be your servants, they pleaded. Now, why would they do that? All right, Nahash said, but only on one condition. I will gouge out the right eye of every one of you as a disgrace to all Israel. In other, in other words, I'm going to permanently humiliate you. Not only physically maim you, but, but we're going to make that a sign of shame. Okay, and everybody's going to know that you were the guys who wimped out. Fair enough. And, and oddly enough, the, the men of Jabesh Gilead in this story, in this, in, in this Bible reference, they're going, well, probably. Okay. So, what is it? That makes it so attractive to sacrifice our vision, to keep the peace within a culture or in response to a society that is driven by powers and principalities that wants to do us in.
What is it about us that makes us want to sacrifice our focus? That makes us want to walk away from having our baseline be the one true God and to trade that in for the focus on our humiliation. As best I can tell, as best I can tell, if I may use a poetic phrase, we are called to kick at the darkness until it bleeds daylight. True or false? So why sacrifice our vision? You know, and here it's literal with, with, with these guys, but it fits pretty easily. I will gouge out the right eye of every one of you as a disgrace to all Israel. Let's see what I have in my magic bag that for years Andy and I used in Bible schools throughout the land. So, ready? Let's pretend that my right eye is gone. Let's pretend that I'm a soldier and I can very effectively wield my sword, but I have this defensive weapon, a shield that I would like to use effectively, but what happens to my field of vision when I bring up my shield? Hostile a bye-bye. Right? Here, you know, it's bad enough that an old guy picks up a shield and a sword made out of plastic anyway. You know, but you got to tell me across a battlefield, is this going to strike terror into your heart? So they're not only going to be humiliated, they're going to be worthless for battle in their own defense after that. So they might as well be occupied. They might as well be conquered. Because that'll be easier. You know, we got to work at it when we find our, our default setting is complacency. We have issues to deal with. If we decide that our role in the kingdom of God is to sit back and watch while we eat Doritos and chip dip. And everyone else does the work. Just saying. Just saying. But there's another curious thing in here that uh, interests, you know, most readers. Nahash agrees to the terms in verse 3, where the elders of Jabesh say, say to give us seven days to send messengers throughout Israel. If no one comes to save us, we will agree to your terms. 
A lot of scholars believe that because Nahash accepted those terms, that he was not prepared to conquer the city. That he was presenting himself as being far more mighty than he actually was. Sometimes the enemy will look terrifying. They will seem to be quite violent. Yet I would submit to you that sometimes the enemy, even though they seem that way, they may not have the resources to follow through. They're still seeking the easiest pathway to the victory they want to achieve. What if we stopped giving them that option? And that becomes the question for Saul in the next few verses. What if fear, which is driving the men of Jabesh Gilead right now, fear was replaced By the perspective of God. What if? Because how does God feel about what's going on? You're going to love this. You know, crisis and a sense of crisis is sometimes crushed, utterly done away with when righteous anger produces radical action. So remember that kick of the darkness until it bleeds daylight. When righteous anger produces radical action. And when you think of the word radical right now, think in terms of its use in chemistry. You know, where a radical, especially we call them free radicals now, you know, it has an electron that needs to be paired up. And it will seek to find that extra electron. And it will sometimes cause a reaction in its search. But at that point, the situation gains stability. It is seeking the stability. So this, this brand of radical action is not something that is ultimately destructive. It's about achieving stability through moving ahead. Okay? And if you need more explanation about radicals in chemistry, talk to a high school junior. They know these things because they have to. When righteous anger produces radical action. Let me give you one example from that. Years ago, years, years, years ago, 30 years ago or so, uh, I had a morning off when I was taking a sponsor tour around Brazil for uh, a relief and development group. And I spent the morning, um, we were in a town, town, a city, uh, named Fortaleza, which was on the equator in Brazil. And a, a group of us decided to go out and body surf. 
Um, and about midway through the morning, two kids showed up, uh, a little guy about nine years old and his sister who was seven, and they asked if they could play with us. Well, how charming. You know, so we had a good time with them, and uh, there was a frisbee on the beach that we tossed around, and we played chicken, you know, put them on our shoulders, and everybody took turns and laughed and had a swell time. And then a few of us decided to go back out and body surf again. And uh, I, was, I was one of them, and I caught a wave, and the wave dashed me. I understood the meaning of that word from that point forward dashed me into the ocean floor, landing me on my head and my shoulder. My shoulder dislocated. My head was, uh, skin was split open on my forehead. And I came out of it looking like, you know, probably the creature from the Swedish lagoon. Uh, But I was messed up. And these two kids take me by the hand. And they walk me back to where they know we're staying. And I get my shoulders put back in, my shoulder put back in and, and uh, get bandaged up. And we asked if they wanted to stay with us for lunch because it looked like they were just wandering on the streets. And they said, yeah, and we found out about their story over lunch and found out that the nine-year-old was learning to be a pimp and the seven-year-old was learning what it was like to be sex trafficked. Suddenly, righteous anger produced radical action. And within two hours, we had arranged a safe house for them. We had called in lawyers. We had notified public officials what we were doing. But I got to tell you something, that it went beyond that incident that I was able to observe because the lawyers that we contacted were a bunch of kids, I can say that safely now, barely out of law school, who had also been raised in the rough parts of Brazil, but they established an organization called Mina Casa, My House, in Portuguese. And they were taking in street kids, releasing them from trafficking. This is 30 years ago releasing them from trafficking, finding them jobs and schooling. And lives were changed, starting with my two little friends, from my perspective, but it had gone on long before that and continues to this day. What if we approached society with the notion that who we have behind us is not subject to fear? Who we have behind us, standing behind us, is not a bunch of despots not a bunch of power grabbers, not a bunch of people who are easily put on the take, but the God of the universe 
who tells us that instead of settling for a peace that is merely the absence of conflict, to bring a peace that is characterized and embodied by the Prince of Peace, whose body we are. We are his hands, we are his feet, we are his voice. And people find freedom when we proclaim it. Because of us? No. Because we point to the source. Because we know the story doesn't end here. But it goes on. And it frees people we'll never see this side of glory. And I'm okay with that. Because I know if I obey today, if I obey in the context of where I am and who I am, if we obey in the context of who God has called us to be, the change that we so deeply cry for will happen. Right? Come on, I love you. Verse 4. Righteous anger leads to radical action. Ready? When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, that was Saul's hometown, and told the people about their plight, everyone broke into tears. Saul had been plowing a field with his oxen, and when he returned to town, he asked, What's the matter? Why is everyone crying? So they told him about the message from Jabesh. You need to notice real quickly on the fly, for the big context of the story, Saul had kept his day job. Okay? While he was waiting for the kingship thing to to settle. Nice sense of humility there. I just thought I'd point it out. Because in the next few chapters, Saul kind of goes by the wayside. Give the poor guy a break. Verse 6. You got to love this. Watch out. Then the Spirit of God came powerfully upon Saul and he became very angry. Oh, come on. Really? You mean sometimes God drives us into a stance of anger? Sure he does. But as the Apostle Paul teaches, don't stay there. And if God drives you into a place of righteous anger, figure out with him what radical action you need to take. Because sometimes it's radical action you can do right in your own heart. Sometimes it's radical action you can enact right at home. You know, I'm not, I'm not talking about raising rabble on YouTube. I mean, if that's what God calls you to do. But if you know someone is in need, help them. Right? 
Shall we make this more difficult? Saul took two ox and he cut them into pieces and sent the messengers to carry them throughout Israel with this message. This is what will happen to the oxen of anyone who refuses to follow Saul and Samuel into battle. And the Lord made the people afraid of Saul's anger. And all of them came out together as one. When Saul mobilized them at Bezek, he found that there were 300,000 men from Israel and 30,000 men from Judah. Okay, they're ready. They're almost hand-rested and ready to rock. The Spirit of God came powerfully on Saul. The Spirit of God is behind Saul and Samuel. Sometimes when people respond to Saul and Samuel, as we'll see in a few verses, they're actually responding to God because they see his handiwork so clearly in their lives. But watch what God does. He takes the battle from the realm of fear regarding circumstances. Oh, the Ammonites. They're going to conquer us and then they're going to put our eyes out. Woe is me. No, way out of that ballpark. Into the ballpark of reverence into the ballpark of fellowship, into the ballpark of doing the right thing in the eyes of God, the creator of the universe. Saul would have been safe from any kind of direct attack if he had stayed home with the oxen. Right? Saul could have been safe, but something in Saul, the Holy Spirit, Something in Saul would not allow him to stay home while the people he was about to lead were threatened. Does that make sense? Do you ever feel sometimes a need to move forward in your relationship with God or in your relationship with other people? And you wonder what that is that is making you feel so antsy. You just might explode if you can't act on it someday soon. Every once in a while, listen. Make it a point to find out what God might be doing. And I'll get you out of here in time for your 1215 reservations, okay? Verse 9, Saul sent the messengers back to Jabesh Gilead to say, We will rescue you by noontime tomorrow. There was great joy throughout the town when that message arrived. High noon, high noon. It's coming. Eat your heart out, Gary Cooper. We're on our way. Dread turned into joy once the battle became the Lord's. Dread of the enemy turned into joy for the victory they anticipated because they realized who was behind them. Instead of letting the Ammonites be dictating their fate, 
They turned over their, their outcome. They turned it over to God. The men of Jabesh then told their enemies, tomorrow we will come out to you and you can do to us whatever you wish. But before dawn the next morning, Saul arrived, having divided his army into three detachments. Now in doing this, and in doing this in the timing and in the manner he did, it's very much, and and purposefully so, uh, like the attack Gideon orchestrated against the Midianites in Judges 7. The reason I want to bring that up is, is because of this, okay? He launched a surprise attack against the Ammonites, slaughtered them the whole morning. The remnant of their army was so badly scattered that no two of them were left together. The distance from Bezek to Jablish Gilead was, uh, was between 13 and 15 miles. It was an easy overnight march. Saul's tactic of dividing the army into three separate detachments allowed them to attack from three different directions. But probably most importantly for Saul and the story going forward, stretching back into last week, going forward into next week, is that Saul achieved his first military victory, pointing to God clearly as the source of that victory, But finally, in the eyes of the skeptics, he was justified. So he'd been anointed by Samuel, he'd been proclaimed as king by Samuel, but now he won the military victory. And everybody thought he was ready to be king. Verse 12, the people exclaimed to Samuel, Now where are those men who said, Why should Saul rule over us? Bring him here and we'll kill him. But Saul replied, no one will be executed today. For today the Lord has rescued Israel. Saul refused vengeance on those who had previously questioned his readiness to be king because he understood that he was not the ultimate reason for victory, but God needed to be credited with the ultimate honor for their, for their victory. Saul knew exactly what was behind him. Then finishing up today's passage, Samuel said to the people, come let us all go to Gilgal to renew the kingdom. So they all went to Gilgal and in a solemn ceremony before the Lord, they made Saul king. Then they offered peace offerings to the Lord and Saul and all the Israelites were filled with joy. So the story can go forward with Saul Fairly ensconced as king. But I want to give you one last challenge and then we're done. There is no greater feeling in the universe than that moment when you finally realize that the God of creation. who gifted us with the redemption available through Jesus Christ is the one who stands behind you ultimately. And if you take a look at Luke 15, you're going to see a progression 
Because it begins with a story of a hundred sheep, 99 are safe, one is lost. And you may wonder how important you are to Jesus. You may wonder whether or not you're worth his time and his sacrifice. So Jesus makes it a point to tell you this story recorded in scripture that says the 99 were safe. Jesus goes for the one. We say 99%, isn't that still an A+. Why do you need me? And Jesus says, because I do. And then the chapter goes on and there's a parable Jesus tells of 10 coins. You know, the lady's got nine of them safe in the medicine cabinet. There's one missing. And she's throwing out couch cushions and and, and she's rearranging furniture and she's finding out all the hiding spots her three-year-old has. In the search for that one coin, and you may ask yourself, you know, she still has nine of great value. Why would she go for the one? Why would she come for me if I were that coin? And Jesus says, Because you're a reason to rejoice when you come home. And speaking of coming home, then there's the famous, famous tale of the prodigal. And you know the details. A young man does what is legally correct but maybe not relationally wise he says hey dad let's pretend that you're dead I want my inheritance now and the father and I you know wonder if he wasn't heartbroken at that moment Agrees, and the kid takes half his father's estate. And wastes it. He wastes it. All that opportunity, all that potential. Gone down the drain. He wastes it. And see, what you need to know. What you need to know is that you may feel that your life to this point has been a waste. And you may think you cannot come to God. Because you know that you know that you know that you wasted it all. And I am here in the authority of the gospel to say today that you are not a waste. To say today that if you take a look at at, at the God who stands behind you, the God who is powerful, the God who is creator, that God is also the ultimate parent. That God is also the father. You know, and Jesus paints this picture that, 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 that I get. You know, I see the father praying every morning. For his youngest kid. 
to get his senses back. I see this dad, you know, putting down the copy of the Jerusalem Times, having read the financials. And I see him pour him a cup of decaf coffee. And like he does every morning, he starts praying for his kid. See? And he goes back and forth and he prays for safety and he doesn't know what he's exposing him to. And boy, I hope the boy eats well today. But God, if you bring him back, if you just bring him back and in the middle of that prayer, he looks out and he sees a figure on the horizon coming down the road and his eyes are old and he doesn't know exactly what he's seeing right now but the figure comes closer and closer and finally the daylight hits him just right and he recognizes his son and he's walking slow and he's walking like he's wounded but it's his boy and you tell me what happens does the father in that story get a couple of bushes of broken glass for service to take out and spread in front of his kid so the kid can crawl over it and really bleed and really show that he's sincere of course not scriptures make it clear that the father having seen his son runs out to greet him and says this is my boy and he hugs him and he embraces him and he looks at his son and he's caught up with compassion my boy is home get him his signet ring get him his robe and the kid put together a speech he would say for his father and father I'm, I'm, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son but, but make me like a hired hand and that will be okay out of your mercy if you will let me be just on the fringe that will be okay and the father, because he is a good father, the father, because he is a loving father, the father, because he wants to stand behind his boy again. And it's not the father who's moved. It's the son who ran off. It's not the father who's disgraced the family name. It's the son. And I am that son. And were I a betting Baptist, I'd say you are those children as well. In need of redemption that comes through repentance, that comes through asking Jesus Christ to invade your heart. See? So real quickly... Let's pray. And God bless you guys. Look who stands behind you. Look who stands behind you. Father, we are so grateful that you are the God who stands behind us. That we do not have to give in to fear that we do not have to give in to powers and principalities, but indeed, Lord God, you have conquered them. You have invited us 
into relationship with you. You have encouraged us to walk the pathways of righteousness, which is walking out the very life and example of Jesus right where we are today, Lord God. We rise up and stand against fear. We rise up and say, refresh our hearts and dwell us richly. And let us be your agents of light and righteousness in Jesus' name.